Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the Institute. I'm John Lenchowski. I'm president of the Institute. And for those of you who are new here, um, I just, uh, you should be aware that we um, are a graduate school of national security and international affairs, and we have five master's programs, a new professional doctoral program. Uh, about uh, half our students are recent college grads, and the other half are mid-career professionals from various government agencies, armed services, intelligence services, uh, including uh, we've had students from about 60 foreign countries and 35 foreign governments. And uh, so if uh, you know anybody who wants to go to school, uh, please ask us about it, and we'll be happy to tell you. Uh, we specialize in teaching the different arts of statecraft, uh, which are the different instruments of national power, military, diplomacy, economic strategy, public diplomacy, strategic influence, intelligence, counterintelligence, cyber strategy. We, we look upon each of these as instruments in an orchestra, and we try to encourage our students not only to master an individual art, but also to think strategically and understand how their art fits into the larger orchestra of our national strategy. Uh, and today we're going to be hearing uh, a presentation by one of the foremost practitioners in the world in his art. Uh, and it is, as you, you all know what this is going to be about, about global privatizations and, and how they are done. Uh, but this is highly relevant to overall integrated strategy, because if we are more effective and we have more people like Bob Barrett uh, serving our nation's interests and the interests of, 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 uh, of our of various friends and allies around the world who are trying to become more prosperous, uh, the, the world will be a better place, will be a, a more prosperous place. Uh, and the, the freedoms that come from the type of thing that Bob does uh, necessarily uh, are, are related to other political freedoms and, and respect for human rights. So it's, it's a very important subject uh, that we're going to be addressing today. Uh, Bob Barrett has been in the finance industry for 47 years. He is the co-founder and honorary chairman of Cross Keys Capital Investment Bank of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, and has been the financial advisor of the Seminole Tribe of Florida. He uh, worked for 10 years uh, in uh, the office of Senator Ted Kennedy, uh, and previously worked for Senator Robert Kennedy. Uh, he worked for Morgan Stanley, and, and investment banking business on Wall Street. Uh, he has been an investment banker to 19 different global governments. Uh, this, he has been the senior financial advisor to 17 governments, including uh, the United States, the <coughs> Israel, the United Kingdom, France, and others. Uh, he 
after Wall Street, he went down to Florida and has built the largest and most successful investment banking uh, company in the state. Uh, and he makes it a good part of his mission to be mentoring people to learn how to do this business in the most professional way possible. We are utterly delighted and honored that he could come here and participate in, in, uh, in our lecture series. And so without further ado, I want to turn the Turn it over to you, Bob, and thank you so much for coming. Thanks a lot. And bringing your wonderful wife, <laughs> Kathy, uh, who uh, has her own amazing biography, but I'm not going to steal the phone. Good afternoon, my fellow students, a student like me of Global High Finance. John is so humble, this is off my script but when we about a month ago, I met with him to talk about, you know, basically what I did for Thatcher for 10 years and the other 19 governments I took care of around the world. And the President of the United States walked into our meeting. Okay. I was impressed. I knew this was a good think tank, but then I really knew it was a good think tank. And then, of course, when General Mattis spoke here, that put the seal on it. So. I feel honored to be with you all today. Today we're going to discuss how and why Lady Margaret Thatcher was one of the most successful leaders of our lifetime and one of the greatest ladies in history. The conclusion of my remarks today are going to be that Margaret Thatcher took over in 1979 when the British economy was almost bankrupt. Did you know that? With enormous debt. Sound familiar? and with almost all of its major companies totally owned by the socialist government. Did you know that? Most people don't. It was so bad that it was hard for the government to keep the roses growing in Hyde Park. The bottom line is that Margaret Thatcher brought us investment bankers in because she was the only one who saw the, the big picture. She understood the whole problem and she had the whole answer called privatization. And she had the leadership to force it through against all odds, including against the negative attacks of some of the world's supposedly brilliant politicians and financial experts in London and New York City. And I was in both places. Does this sound familiar for a leader? What is privatization? You could say that privatization is ultimate statecraft, which they teach at this place right here. The return of a country's assets from the control of socialist governments back to the hands of the people. Or you might call it a return to democracy. Let me remove my gun. The Iron Lady had what you could say was something that few leaders have had in the last 50 years. And that is a brilliant business, political, and economic mind. And what wasn't mentioned in the movie in the books, and in the articles, and on TV, she actually cared about people, which I will explain later. Forget about the movie. There was nothing in there about the real Margaret Thatcher. First, as you know, Kathy and I left New York and London, and now live in Palm Beach, the vacation home of our president. And I must tell you a Palm Beach lady story. A well-known Palm Beach lady stood in front of her mirror and didn't like what she saw. She said to her husband, darling, I am getting old and fat, and my hair doesn't look good. 
can you give me a compliment to make me feel better? Her husband said, honey, of course. I can tell you that you have damn near perfect eyesight. <laughs> it's a Ponzi story. <laughs> Let me show you an example. Let me show you an example of what we're going to discuss today as fast as I can get it to you. This is one of my deals. It's called a Concord. This was one of our great ones. Okay, I did this deal with two other guys from Goldman Sachs and another guy from Morgan. This is an enormous success. This was the time of the Big Bang. We did this stuff in the billions. The guys who did the deal, three of us all got one of these planes. So there aren't many of these around. How many of you saw the movie about Margaret Thatcher? Only a few. Two, three, four? Did the movie explain to you why she was a superhero? Did you remember? No, it didn't, did it? If you were like me, when I saw the movie, I couldn't understand from the movie why she was so famous. I'm going to tell you. What did the movie say that she did that was so fantastic? What, what was so fantastic about her? Do you remember anything? Actually, I don't think it made the points that I'm going to make explain to you today. And that is why she saved the British economy by creating totally new ideas that were never even brought up in the movie. I'd like to explain that. We haven't seen such successful concepts even here in the United States as yet. And we have witnessed some failures, like the General Motors stock sale debacle of Obama here in America. Lady Thatcher avoided such mistakes because she had a different goal from Obama, namely her goal of financial success of both the common man and the institutional big-time investors of her country. Have any of you dealt with an investment banker in your lifetime? Nobody? One. Okay, I'm not really talking about stockbrokers. You might find that interesting. I'm not a stockbroker. To explain Margaret Thatcher's success, I should first define what we investment bankers do and did for Margaret, the grant, the lady, the iron lady. Because few people really understand what we do. I meet hundreds of investment bankers in Palm Beach usually at cocktail parties, but I say that jokingly because few, if any, are really investment bankers. Let me explain. Stockbrokers are not investment bankers. Private bankers aren't. Money managers aren't. Uh, fund managers aren't. Hedge funds are not. Venture capital is not. Mortgage brokers is not. On a not so serious note, you could say that Wall Street investment bankers are like me, guys in pinstripe suits with fancy watches. Actually, allow me to tell you what we really are and why Margaret Thatcher hired us. Here in the States, they hired five, four in London. Those, all those four guys were 20 years older than me. I'm the last guy left who actually did the deals. I have been doing investment banking for 47 years. I'm 74 years of age. I'm getting up there now. As investment bankers, we underwrite. That is, we purchase the securities that we invent for Margaret and that we create. We raise money for corporations and governments by designing stocks and bonds and write a prospectus which we filed at the Securities and Exchange Commission, which we did for Margaret Thatcher. Then we price the stock or bond, and we underwrite it. That is, we buy the stocks or bonds. Did you know that? And we go at risk by owning them, unlike the financial people I just mentioned, who don't go at risk. They take your commissions, but they don't go to risk. I just mentioned that they don't take risk. In other words, we buy what we create. That's called taking a risk. Also, that's called underwriting. 
That's what we do. Then we take the stocks of bonds we create for Margaret Thatcher or General Electric, I shouldn't use that word now, or AT&T, and we give it to these people who are in the syndicate and we blow their stock out all over the world. That's what we do. It's called an underwriting syndicate. If the stocks go up after we price them or underwrite them, excuse me, if the stocks go down, we lose a lot of money. We just lose money because we own them. If the stocks or bonds go up, we can't sell them at a higher price. That's the law of the United States. Okay? It's in the Securities Act, 34 Act, 33 Act. This applies to privatizations, which you probably didn't know. If in a privatization we underwrite the privatization in the billions, and we price the common stock of the privatization, like British Airways, Concord, and the price goes down, we, it, we, lose, we lose a lot of money, and we lose our jobs. So when my friends in Palm Beach or Washington, D.C. asked me what I recommend for stocks, I said, I don't sell stocks. I'm an investment banker. I underwrite them, and I, sell, I distribute them around the world. I didn't give Margaret Thatcher advice on her stock portfolio. I would also like to show you what we investment bankers use to execute transactions. Here's one. This is, you know, all across the world, these mergers and acquisitions, this is one. Deals are going on all around us. All you had to read the paper the last three days, you know, AT&T, Time Warner, Fox. These are the biggest things going on in the world. It's where the real money is. It's where the jet fuel of business is. That's what we do. And that's what we did for Thatcher to the extent of 50 companies, not one or two, 50. Okay. You can see that these, these, the work that we do uh, is pretty detailed. You know, that's 50 pages, all numbers. It takes a long time to put, it take, takes about three or four guys, about three or four months just to get the thing written up. Uh, another important aspect of what we do is, is that our hiring requirements for our people are quite different than others uh, around. We usually have to have a master's in business, or a law degree, or an accounting degree, all of which I had to go through myself. That's why I'm so old. Another aspect of why Margaret Thatcher brought in five of us from Wall Street is because each one of us had a three to five man team back then. So you need a lot of people to get this work done. You know, the stuff we do is very detailed. So. I'm telling you that basically privatization is really mergers and acquisitions, and it's business development. It's actually the jet fuel of business development. My little firm that I built that starting in 02 in Florida is now the biggest. We've done about six billion of such equity jet fuel down there in Florida. If you like Florida, come on down. This is basic business that I do every day. I got 22 guys that work with me. I'm the chairman. Uh, now, my basic job for Margaret Thatcher was to sell government-owned companies, okay? And then to take that money and to cut the debt, which is how we turned around the British economy, which was just about ready to go bankrupt. Most people, even you, don't realize that. But that's the truth. Uh, like the United States today, her government had too much debt outstanding. We have too much debt outstanding. You don't hear him talking too much, except for Trump, about the possibilities of privatization. That's because we don't do much in America. Okay? All right, so we, 
have, have any of you heard of privatizations in America? Have any of you heard of it? Very little. Well, let me tell you, when I finish with you, you're going to be experts. I worked on the only two big U.S. privatizations. They were Continental Illinois and Conrail. They were both gone out of business. I testified before Congress. I was there, and I, did, I worked on those two deals. That's the only two big ones in America. You might be interested that I've done similar transactions for about 17 countries and two Indian nations, the Seminole Tribe and the Penobscot Indian Nation up near my home in Bangor, Maine. One comment, Indian tribes are very tricky to deal with. That's a real specialty. Uh, for example, you wouldn't know Seminoles, I, I did them. Do you know we own Hard Rock, the casinos in uh, 167 locations around the world? The Seminole Tribe of Florida. Okay, now you might be interested, and you're going to be the only ones in Washington, D.C. to know this, what I'm going to tell you right now. You might be interested in where did the word privatization come from. It came from David Howell, who was in Lady Thatcher's cabinet. The word privatization was chosen instead of the word denationalization. Okay, that's just a point that you might like to know. Because nobody in this government here knows what it is. Because there's nobody in this government in Washington, D.C. who knows how to do privatizations. That's why I say I'm getting to be the old guy on the block. I'm going to show you how to do it, because we did it. I can't help but make some comparisons with our local and national politics. And this is a good opportunity to do so about the Iron Lady when she took over May 4th, 79. At that time, most important companies in England were owned by the socialist government. In 1974, Harold Wilson had been Prime Minister. And after him, James Callahan in 76, then, then the, the Iron Lady came in. Uh, the economy and its leading co uh, co companies at that time represented basically 100% unadulterated socialism. Got it? I got the list if you want to see it here. Almost Jaguar, British Oil, you name it, owned by the government. That's what we were dealing with in England. Margaret Thatcher didn't believe something that you may or may not believe in, that the government should, she doesn't believe that the government should invest the people's money in business deals and run businesses. That's a key point in privatization. I compare that theory, on the other hand, with Obama's famous government deal, Solyndra. Okay? He took his shot, how'd it do? That's Lady Thatcher's point. Lady Thatcher, and here's the big point, and now I'm going to make you experts. Lady Thatcher's big point is she wanted to sell almost all government-owned so-called good businesses. I got plenty of politicians in America who want to own businesses. Right in Palm Beach, we got it. Lady Thatcher didn't think governments were good business managers, and he didn't think government elected officials were elected for their business management skills, and politicians didn't have the right to start their own businesses with people's, with the people's money. Very few politicians that I know, and I've, I worked 10 years in the US Senate, and I worked 10 years in London for Thatcher, and all the politicians I know, they don't have any experience running businesses. They talk a lot. You know how I feel about that. Lady Thatcher did not trust politicians, but she had to work with them every day, nor their ability to run businesses. More than that, here's a big point, and I'm teaching you how to do privatizations, because you're going to be able to tell any congressman or senator you talk to that you know more about it than they do, because they never ask any questions here in America. 
More than that, Thatcher wanted to fire all of the government business managers who weren't any good. Can you imagine? She wanted to fire them. Why? This was one of her genius initial moves. She had the strength to do it. She realized she couldn't privatize the British economy without top-level successful business persons running the companies. She wanted to sell and return the companies to the private sector. So she spent a lot of money with the New York City and London headhunters, which I've had to deal with all my life, and find the best people and put them in charge of the British gas, British telecom. She hired them all, paid good prices. American government doesn't necessarily pay good prices. I know, because they've had to hire me a lot. And they always are low price. Thatcher paid top price for top management. That's another genius thing she did. You never heard about that in the movie, did you? Okay, the positive, the forward thinking of this woman was unbelievable. She was a genius. Okay, she had to fire all these guys. Then, show you some of her tricks. She also realized that the government employees that were all on the payroll weren't very good to the English. Public. So you know what she did when we were doing British Telecom? No, we were doing British Airways. She sent all the stewardesses to charm school. I swear, she did it. Okay? We had the same problem with uh, British Telecom. Our operators were not good to the public. We had to train them how to be nice to the public. She thought of that. Not the investment bank. She thought of that. This was the start of the Big Bang. Whoever won that phrase is from London when she started. It's called the Big Bang Period. We had to flip-flop a country. Totally. You ever seen a country? Big country? Totally turned upside down? That's what we're talking about. Was that in the movie? No, it wasn't, was it? Also, by the, at this time, the greatest things for us guys and ladies, there weren't any ladies. The food got better in London. <laughs> As she started to spend the money, the restaurants got better. That was great. How do we Americans get involved? Well, we Americans had some pretty good skills. How did I get started and get involved in doing 34 billion? That's what I did almost 40 years ago, when 34 billion was almost unimaginable. Well, my involvement with Margaret Thatcher came from AT&T. Uh, when I left Harvard Business School, within weeks I started at Morgan Stanley, 140 Broadway, which had fewer than 100 people there when I joined. Hired six of us. Today there are 57,000. We didn't even have 100 people. We didn't have a computer. We had one computer, IBM. We had no fax machine. You know how we did work around the world? Overnight couriers on planes. That's, that's how we did business. That was 71. We were ranked number one in the world. We moved documents around the world with overnight couriers, and too many nights I spent down at the printers in New York because we didn't have word processing. You had to go down the printer with these lead things, types, and we'd do 500,000 copies. Press a button. It's okay to go. Press a button. If you made a mistake, you're fired the next day. Because we print 500,000 copies. Okay? So I made $14,000 that year when I graduated from Harvard. I was on scholarship, and I, I did pay off all my loans. They hired six of us that year. Mickey Serafin was my roommate. She's dead now. Her name is Serafin Brill. Uh, now, you know, when I arrived, the first thing they taught me, uh, Charlie Townsend taught me, my boss, he's a Harvard <coughs> Business School engineer, he said, you see this, 
this thing called the Wall Street Journal? And I said, yeah. He says, when you come to work in the morning, if you haven't read it, go home. That's a, today, I teach that to, uh, we have 22 people, maybe half are all young, from the University of Florida, Virginia, not enough from the University of Maryland, not enough from Georgetown. But anyway, I always teach the kids. Start reading. You're not going to get smarter, but you're going to be more knowledgeable than your professors. Believe me, you're going to be more knowledgeable than your professors. So that's how I teach today. So I had just worked on the biggest deal in the history of the world. I started at Morgan with AT&T, and when I left Morgan, they hired me to be one of their five bankers. I did a billion-dollar deal for AT&T, the biggest deal in history. So I knew how to do telephone deals. And, you know, I worked with Judge Green. You probably don't know who Judge Green is. He's the worst person you should ever know. He's an Austrian. He speaks with an Austrian accent. He broke up AT&T. He hated big companies. And he broke up AT&T. And I told him, you don't have to do it, Judge, because it's the best in the world, and it's the cheapest. And a monopoly works great with a telephone company. Well, Judge Green, you know what he did? Very few people understand what he did. When he appeared before the judge, he spoke in a German accent. He appointed himself the overseer of the breakup till the day he died. He made money on the deal. That's called the real world out there. I wasn't too happy with him. And the, the second thing is, you know, the antitrust division of the government. Just, they got guys there, lawyers. I'm a lawyer, you know, I'm a member of the New York Party. I don't respect guys who don't really understand business but love to break them up. I don't understand it. But secondly, any trust law, and I was trained on the guys who wrote the law, on the law school, it's not a concept of English common law. It's a concept of France. France is against big companies. I mean, you take the Rothschild Bank in Paris, they were taken over three times by the, the socialist government. They, they want to break everything up. I don't understand it. You know, the, the fact of the matter is that the time they busted it up, which is the dumbest thing I've ever seen, they had just tried to break up IBM. They lost the case because they had a good law firm fighting in Cravat Swain anymore. My roommate was on the defense team. But at that time, AT&T had the biggest debt in the world. It had more debt outstanding than the US government. Can you imagine? And it had the number one tech lab in the world. It was called Bell Labs. It had more patents than anybody in the world. I was working on all this stuff. And in San Francisco, I was in the office of the chairman of the board of Pacific Telephone. Don Wynn, when they announced the breakup. It's called a consent decree. And Don told me what happened. I had to go back to 190 Broadway, which is the home of AT&T. And we were charging $5 a month for telephone service. And they weren't dropping calls. It was all the same switches, only one set of uh, testing equipment, clear as a bell. We just formed, we built ITT, we built Bell Canada. We, I mean, the work that AT&T did, why? I said that the judge, you're going to kill the common man when you do this. And they went ahead and did it because it was all politics. Okay, so how did I get over there to London? And I'll show you why. You see this newspaper right here? I was sitting down in the morning reading this. And I went to page two. And here it said over here, British post office to sell telephone company. Well, post office owned the telephone company. So, I called Dan Evans up, who's the head of our research department, I said, get packed, I have an appointment with Doug Perryman, the treasurer of British Telecom. 
on Gresham Street in London, and we are going to try to get appointed to do that deal, the biggest deal in history. And, you know, I headed over there. And when I arrived, I made the classic mistake that forever I had to warn Americans about. Don't go directly from the plane to the meeting. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a bad thing to do. I would, it was absolutely freezing in London, and I am used to cold because I'm from Maine. And as we entered this non-entity building, uh, for our first important meeting at Doug Perryman's office, he was the CFO, it was overly hot, like only a British government building can be. So, as I started to tell Doug how we just did the biggest deal in history for AT&T, and how we should do British privatization, I looked to my right and the head of research, my friend Dan Soundsley. It's due to the heat, you know, he was tired. So I said, oh, this is dead meat. I, I should go home. Sitting in front of the treasurer, PT, sound asleep. My part was sound asleep. <laughs> but AT&T had told some nice words about us. So despite his falling asleep, uh, Doug asked me to come back and appear before Parliament. I used to do that in the U.S. Congress here, about things like this. Comments. I said, I'd come back. But then he hit me with what Margaret Thatcher wanted to do. We had done a billion for AT&T, biggest deal ever. Margaret wanted to do four billion. Okay? That was an enormous risk because, you know, I had to buy it. We had to underwrite it. We had to write a check for $4 billion. You know, five billion. So, that's when the political battle began. Now, we're, I'm going to teach you real privatization. The politicians in the big, the politicians in the big U.S. investment banks, etc., said it was stupid. And she, you can't do it, Margaret. And also, the deal's too big for the, for the world to buy. Well, I knew that one. Sure. Well, you know, I have to tell you, that negativism we faced was just like what they do to Trump. No difference. Except maybe not as vicious. But probably. Pretty close to it. And this is why Margaret Thatcher deserves so much credit and never got it in the movie. Because she believed she was right, and nobody had ever done a $4 billion transaction. She said, we can do it. A woman, all alone. She said, we can do it. And everybody said, you can't do it. So they asked Bob Barrett to testify <laughs> before Parliament. So anyway, she stood up all alone against those people, and she won. Okay, the movie left all that out. That would have been cool in the movie. They didn't write about it. Because they didn't know anything about it. Nobody's written this stuff up. Get it in this speech from me, but you can't get it anywhere else. So I went back to the crew. I was on the board of directors there then. And I asked them for a bunch of money. I knew I was going to have to commit before Parliament. They're going to say, I was going to say, I know we can do this deal, and we're going to do it. And I knew they were going to say, put your money where your mouth is. This is privatization, ladies and gentlemen. We've got to underwrite it. Okay? You didn't know about this, did you? So anyway, Obama didn't understand any of this either. Believe didn't have any guys who know anything about it working with them. So anyway, I testified. My boss at Morgan Stanley testified against me, and Goldman Sachs testified against me. And then as witnesses has said, they watched me in that room, this Davis Polk Law Firm, the lawyer was with us again the other night, he was in the room. 
And he said, Bob said, I'll take a billion. And that's what I said. I'll start at a billion. But I'd gone to the proof, and I had a check for a billion dollars in my back pocket. I was ready to go. I knew we could do it. So I had to appear before the bankers, and I had to prove it. I appeared for And the key, the key issue was, can we sell it? It was like when Obama put, how much he put, I can tell you later, into General Motors. He lent him the money. never made the money back. But you've got to underwrite this stuff. And so nobody dared to do it. I mean, in the room, everybody's shaking. My God, we're going to be held to this. And I was causing trouble for Goldman and my old boss here, Morgan. So anyway, they had, once I said that, that was it. They had to go along. I knew that was going to happen. That was uh, the incredible genius of her. She's telling the whole world in London and New York and Hong Kong, oh, we're selling in Hong Kong too. We can do it. And they all disagreed with her. And they were the financial experts. She's only a woman. I do respect my wife. <laughs> Witnesses now tell me there was shock in the room when I offered to take a billion. By the way, I did it later. Again. <laughs> in Congress. I did it in Congress. And, uh, and I was writing in there. So anyway... Uh, now, you know, what was Margaret trying to accomplish? Well, she, had, she was doing something that George Bush the Jr. stole from her, a concept that he stole from her, is that at the time we were thinking about doing this, this is another thing you'll know and nobody else will know. Of all the stocks and bonds in England at the time, the people of England only owned 3%. And Thatcher had the idea to turn this government around. I got to have the people owning their own country. Now, you remember Bush used to say he's so proud that he got Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and all that to get everybody to own a house. Remember that concept, ownership of your country? No, that was Thatcher's idea. And I got to get that stock of my companies in the hands of my citizens. I got to teach them. Like, bro, that's all Trump does is teach you all of them. And that's what she did. Of course, we had to do it. There was a lot of depression amongst the populace. They were depressed. Terrible economic conditions. The prior Callahan government had been terrible. Thatcher wanted to increase the ownership by the people. I said she loved the people. So she had to ask us, how are we going to do all this? Well, I know how we were going to do it, because we did it with at and It was easy. But she didn't know that, and Goldman didn't know that, and Morgan didn't know it, because I had moved over to Prudential. We had all these brokers in it. All the Americans were buying up AT&T like you can't believe it. We had like a 5.5% dividend. It's a good company. Everybody would buy this stuff. So what happened was that most important politicians, business groups, and so-called financial experts, and the financial press totally disagreed with the leader. Sound familiar? She was right. They all were wrong. She was smarter than they were. Was that in the movie? No. That's what I remember about it. And you know, unlike most politicians in the world, they don't know what's going on. She did. What has struck me over the last 25 years of having done this, actually done it, having done it and underwritten it, is how simple her ideas were. I have often been quite awestruck, as I say here, at how many political leaders today could not successfully manage economic affairs, or in particular, economic turnarounds, which all of you who have gone out in the world and helped these countries, 
You're going to have to do something, and you're going to have to look at privatization. Okay? If I had to pick one word for her, the Iron Lady's success, I would pick the word leadership. Something that I taught at my business school. Matter of fact, that's all I taught. You don't have to be the smartest to go to my business school. You just got to be a leader. That's all we care about. All 900 of us. My class. 950. So anyway, another phrase might be leadership against political adversity. That might be the bottom line. Once we decided to go forward with $4 billion, that was it. We decided to pull out all the stops. Now I'm going to teach you how to do it. Stuff that they don't even know in America. The ideas we came up with were brilliant, and it worked. I must say I was never worried. You could feel the strength emanating from that woman. You could feel it. You could feel nothing was going to stop her. I would say that the total resistance against her was equal to what Trump's running into now. He may have a little bit more. Now, as is the case around the world, whenever you run into privatization, this is for you students of it, the resistance normally first comes from the unions. Union leaders don't want to lose the control they have over the companies that are owned by the government. They don't want to see that happen. Make too much money off of it. Added to their resistance is always the political left who do not agree with business controlling business. They want to control them. Almost all privatizations encounter resistance from the unions, the workers, the workers, and the political left. At one point during the privatization process, my mentor, the chairman of British Coal, Sir Ian McGregor, was actually physically attacked by the coal miners. Uh, the union was run by Arthur Scargill, who was a card-carrying Marxist, and they beat him up. They beat up Sir Ian. I talked to Serene about it. His son was my roommate in, in law school. However, history has shown that companies that are privatized generally provide better wages to employees, better pensions, are more competitive, more profitable, and modern. And this is the result of putting a good manager in. You're going to get rid of these fake out, unintelligent, unexperienced leaders who aren't really great business people. When you're considering doing a privatization, this is one of the first things you've got to do, is get a good manager in there. Because if you do a great deal, and you have the same manager there after you do it, the thing's going to fall apart. You're going to get killed in your job as a politician. Now, after 47 years and 16, 17 governments, I would say that I can truly say that Lady, Lady Thatcher was correct. And that she proved you don't want these government guys running businesses. Now, England was bad. I mean, it wasn't as bad as Venezuela and Cuba, but it was bad. Now, the next question is pricing, pricing the privatization. Nobody can talk to you about this. I can tell you how to do it right now. Now, pricing is always ultimately important to the success of an enterprise. And the pricing of a product that is worth $4 billion and purchased by millions of people at the same minute is very difficult. How do you price a $4 billion deal? Anybody out there got an idea? How would you do it? Well, I had the great professor, Sam Hayes, in my business school. He never gave me a book on how to do this. You know, the first time I had to price it, I had to figure it out. I don't think such a book exists. But we did it successfully, unlike the General Motors deal. Let me explain how cool Margaret was. For you Obama fans, I'll make the comparison to Obama's sale of General Motors, which was like a privatization. 
You won't be happy with me if you're an Obama fan, but it's important to know how to do it right as opposed to screwing it up. Thatcher saw that to fix the economy, she had to raise billions. And at the same time, she wanted the voters who were going to buy the stock we were going to sell, underwrite and sell, she wanted them to make money. And then she wanted them to come back and invest in more of, of England. We had 54 deals to do in the future. We couldn't make a mistake. The first one we did had to be a success. <coughs> Not the case with Jen Love. The boss didn't care. She wanted to ensure the success of 50 companies that were coming up in the future. So when we priced British Telecom, let's say the stock was worth $10 a share, okay? Here's what they didn't write a book about. We priced it at eight or nine bucks. You know why? She wanted the investors to make money. Unlike the General Motors deal. Obama didn't want people to make money. Thatcher did. But Thatcher wanted the common man to make money. And I'll tell you how we did that. And, and, and nobody else will tell you how to do this. You had to do it. The second thing is the institutions. We cared about the big institutions too, but less so than the common man. We wanted the investors foaming at the mouth. We finished this deal. So they'd buy the next 50 deals we had to do. Can you imagine the challenge, what we had to do? We had to dream this up. Never been done before. So anyway, let's look at Obama. Obama needed to sell a General Motors stock, okay? Something like a privatization to recover and justify the money he spent to bail out General Motors. He priced the deal at a price which appeared to cover his butt, his investment, and made him look good on the return of the amount of money he spent and justify his investment with the American people's money. He priced the shares, Obama, at approximately $32 a share. And in the next few days, the stock declined to approximately $23 a share. In other words, everybody lost money. Big time. The common man and the institution. They didn't care. The I could see it coming a mile away. Because if you called up Merrill Lynch the day before it went effective at the SEC, you'd have all the stock you want. They'd force you to take the stock. The public and everyone else lost money. There's another recent deal that went like that. Obama wanted to maximize the price, so the issue was mispriced. You could see it coming, like I said here in my notes, a mile away. I didn't buy it, but a lot of my friends lost money on it. Now, in British Telecom, it's a big deal, the gold standard. This is a gold standard of privatization. I'm teaching it to you. We priced BT. In November of 1984, at 130 pence, around $1.56 a share. In the first month, the stock went up 10%. And by the year end, the British Telecom stock was up 180%. Guess what happened? Margaret succeeded. The public succeeded. The public made money. The institutions made money. The government made money. And they're foaming at the mouth for our next deal. Which was, here we go, <laughs> British Airways, okay? We never had enough stock on that one. It's one of my favorite deals. Now, you know, to break even on, on Obama's investment in GM, the remainder of the stock that the government owned would have had to be sold at $72 a share. Recently, the stock trades at $43 a share. The government had lost about $10 billion on its $49.5 billion loan to General Motors. 
which they should have gone bankrupt. In comparison, you see what Margaret wanted to do. Two totally different approaches of leaders of major company, countries on how to treat their citizens and how to get their money appropriately and how to get the citizens to make money and turn the depression around. Everybody was depressed over there. Alright. Now the new tricks that we had to do, they were attacking them all the time. The first big attack that we got was this. You might hear this Sunday. The first bit attack was that Thatcher was selling out British companies to global investors. <coughs> we're going through that in Washington. <coughs> ZTE or whatever name that Chinese company. Same type of arguments. They said that uh, you know we're selling the stock all over the globe. And they said uh, it creates a security problem with companies like Telephone. And uh, to solve this problem, we invented what was called the golden chair. Never happened ever before, by which the government retained one vote that was a powerful vote that could control a company if a national security issue happened. We did that. We invented it. A golden share was a nominal share held by the government or an agency which could outvote all other shares relating to that company. See? Brand new idea. You hear it go around Washington DC now. Oh, we've got to worry about this now. We figured a way around it. Next problem I ran into was when my young vice presidents would fly over to work with me, uh, I kept losing them at lunchtime. They kept disappearing. I was really worried about it. So I asked them, what's going on here? And they took me to a famous luxury store, and you all heard it, it's called Harrods. You know Harrods? <laughs> over there on Brompton Road in Knightsbridge. They took me over there. Guess where they took me? Lingerie department. These vice presidents that were working for me, they were hanging out in the lingerie department at Harrods at lunchtime, trying to meet pretty English girls. True story. It took me about a month or two to figure out what was going on. That's one problem I had. So, you know, we had uh, about 400 employees in our London office. I was a head guy. And we had 600 in our office at Bishop's Gate in London. I mean, no, our office in London was at Bishop's Gate. We had 600 investment bankers in New York. Of those are 1,000 employees, they all want to work on my team. You know why? Because the Iron Lady paid all my bills at Claridge's for 10 years. Can you imagine? And secondly, they gave me a free pass on the Concord, a little blue pass. Anytime I wanted to get on that Concord. I wouldn't take the French one, because I did the due diligence on this plane. We didn't know when it was going to fall apart, honestly. We only built about 14 planes. We had, we had about uh, oh, some of the things that were Concord you can't imagine. Like we had like seven in France, seven over here in our place. And the French, you know, they're stealing the parts. You know, did you know they, they weren't digital or analog? That was an old plane. And we were making a fortune off it because we paid it off in the first two or three years. But we flew it upside down over the Atlantic to test it for cracks, etc. And then I had to approve the insurance policy. And the clause in the insurance policy said this is this is uh, protected against any and all problems. Nobody knew it was going to have a problem. And then the French started that problem. I would never fly in that French plane. No matter how much champagne or lobster they gave me, I would not fly in it. They didn't take good care of their plane. They're a bunch of bums. I'm telling you, they're a bunch of bums over there. The next problem was drugs. Now, I had 
gone to Columbia University, my law school, and then I'm going to Boston and business school, and the drugs had hit. They hit, not when I was at Georgetown, but when I, they hit at Columbia. And I, I'd walk in the meeting, all these lawyers, you know, too many lawyers. <laughs> too many lawyers. And I'm a lawyer. I'm a member of the New York Bar and the Maine Bar. So anyway, I walk in a room and everybody's whacked out. You've got a room full of 35 people. Lawyers everywhere. And, I, and charging up fees like you can't believe. And then New York lawyers are too. And I look at my roommate, Ian McGregor, who we were roommates in law school together at Columbia University, and I say, What's, there's something wrong in this room. This room is crazy. This room is whacked out. What people are wacky in here? I say, Bob, everybody's on drugs. I'd say, what do you mean? Well, see, the Americans, if they're flying over, they don't follow my rule. It's leave a day after you're flying. Go to the hotel and sleep. These guys were coming over, going right to the meeting. They're whacked out. So they started taking sleeping pills. I even remember the name of it. Halcyon. Halcyon. They were all taking Halcyon. And my father's a medical doctor from Georgetown Medical School. And he said, Bob, don't ever take that Halcyon. Whatever you do, don't take it. But the guys were taking it. It was wacky at times. That's called doing a privatization. <laughs> the big, next big problem was, you know, we did these deals and they were successes because we're pricing them. So these big institutions all over the world wanted to buy every share we had. Okay? Now the problem was that's what Thatcher wanted. Thatcher wanted the common meaning to get the stock and want, remember this if you're doing a privatization. You want to do it right as opposed to the United States. We don't know how to do it right. You know why? We don't have one guy in this government knows how to do this stuff. And secondly, they never asked us. They don't ask us for advice. Okay? They think they can do it. And they talk about it in the press, but they don't know how to do it. Okay. So, basically, we had to protect the common man. Now, Goldman Sachs couldn't do it. Morgan couldn't do it, because they're institutional firms at that time. Now, Morgan has 57,000 stockbrokers. Okay? But in those days, zero. So, what we did, you won't believe the stuff we did. The first thing we did is we invented clawback. Now, when you heard a clawback, you heard of Bernie Madoff. Now, you remember, Bernie started a long time ago. And all of our friends who got ahead, particularly in Palm Beach, uh, 400 million, one of my friends lost 400 million. He was started in the early days with Bernie Madoff. And he made money from Bernie 20 years. But that wasn't real profit. That was stealing money from new investors and giving it to my friends, right? Like my friend owned a company called Nine West. He lost, he lost 400 million. So anyway, we had to claw back shares. You know, when we do a deal, when we get set up to price it and all the work's done, we put the, pre the tentative price out there, we're going to price it at $8 a share next week, and, and they pre-sell it all over the world. <coughs> well, we found out tons of it is going to these J.P. Morgan and company. Okay? That's not what that you want. We wanted some of that, but not all of it. So, we put a clause in the agreements. Of course, the lawyers did it. But we put a clause called clawback. In the, guys have never seen this before this year. We could go to the institutions. Everybody would give them stock to sell and claw it back and give it to the common man. They hated that. Because that was pre-sold. 
That was pre-sold. That stuff was pre-sold nicely with strong hands. Although a lot of the institutions do what we call flip. They pay off research chips by buying a lot and then they sell it the next day, particularly because that's another problem. I won't get into it. So clawback was a big thing we invented. Then another thing we did. Uh, you know, the Bernie Madoff trustees stole that phrase from us. They used clawback with Bernie Madoff. Uh, another thing we did was uh, we did some really wild things. We gave free stock to employees. Can you imagine? We take a percentage of the deal and we send the word out to the employees and they'll give you some stuff. Had a crazy thing that happened, and it happened on this one in particular because I remember I was in control. I had the stock myself down in the basement of the building. <laughs> All these employees got free stock. You know what happened? Many of them were too lazy to come pick it up. I swear to God. We had stock left over because they were too lazy to come in and pick it up. Can you imagine? That's called privatization. These are the real tricks of privatization. So anyway, another thing we did, uh, we, we let them buy stock on time. Like, a, like buying a refrigerator. I swear to God we did it. Nobody's ever done that before. Another thing we did was, uh, if they held the stock for three years, in other words, created stability out there, so we'll give them 10% more stock three years from now. Imagine we did that. And not, you never hear about these things in Washington, D.C., because they never ask us. Because the guys running the government here don't know anything about business. I'm telling you, it's true, because I've been around for the last 15 years. And I had to testify in Congress. You had to teach these guys things. Another thing we did was we ran signs on the side of the road. Can you imagine? We ran signs. You can buy the British Telecom stock. If you call this number, you know, I mean, we had to make it a success. And we wanted them foaming at the mouth for the next deal. Okay? I'm teaching you stuff that's never been written about. It's not in the movie. It's what's so cool about this stuff. But when you go all over, I've done 17 government. When you go around the world, you got to know this stuff. And frequently, there's a lot of corruption in privatizations around. And there have been some very famous people in this town who almost went to jail. And I know who they are. Some of them were erstwhile friends of mine in the old days. Playing around in global privatization, particularly where oil is involved. People from the U.S. Congress. Okay? You've got to be careful when you're doing a privatization. I'm not going to go into it, but just remember what I said. It is the, it's the, it's really tricky. Gotta, you've got to have honest people, and you've got to watch everybody all the time. And I can give you examples, and I can name people in Congress who almost went to jail, fooling around, and writing clauses in contracts for royalty payments in perpetuity. I've seen them do that in privatization. That's a criminal. Okay, and they're lawyers who do it usually. So now let's sum it all up. I've been going on forever. No, actually, I'm, I'm on schedule here. Okay, the result of our efforts, all right? Substantial success. 90% of the employees purchased the privatization shares. 
The shares went up in value over 180% in the first year. Try that one on Obama. Try that one on Solyndra. Our deals were nine times oversubscribed because we marketed the deals and we priced it right, as opposed to the French. Yeah, they mispriced it. <laughs> okay, and the British investors increased their ownership of their own companies from 3% to 20%. Now, since then, it's gone, gone down a little. I just checked it on the way here. And that's because the institutions have been buying up British stocks, which dilutes the amount of shares owned by the common man. The biggest success that wasn't in any movie, and now I'm going to sign off with you, you know what the success of Margaret Thatcher was. It wasn't what's in the movie. It wasn't all the BS about her being a woman. She was a successful businessman and a successful economic planner and a thinker. But what I say was the most important, leadership. She drove it down their throats, and they were all against her, except for me. So uh, and when I finished testifying, there wasn't much I could do, because I said, give me some more. Filling isn't enough, give me some more. I know I'll blow it out. So I, I also mentioned the destruction of the Soviet Union bill uh, with Pope John Paul and Ronald Reagan and her. Let's fix it. Let's give her some credit. Okay. A lot of times you see on the TV they don't give they don't give her credit. They don't give Pope John Paul credit. Let's give her credit. Remember the famous million people mass in the middle of Warsaw Square? Remember that. Now just to give you a feel, so you're the smartest people in Washington, DC about privatization. Any of you students here, when I finish with you, you can't get this course in government at Georgetown. Like I, that's where I got my government. Okay, you can't get this. It's not even in the papers. I give you a feel for what we did. Thirty-four billion. Okay, it's a lot of money in those days. Thirty-seven years ago. Okay, British Aerospace we did. Cable and Wireless. Amsham International. That's a pharmaceutical. Oil. Associated British Ports. Jaguar. British Telecom. British Gas. British Airways. Rolls Royce. British Airports Authority. British Steel, my mentor, Serena McGregor, the regional water companies, the regional electric companies. Now, let me sum it up. And now you've heard the real story about Margaret Thatcher. Wasn't in the books, isn't in the books, not in the movies. You see the guy who actually did it. And I went at risk. My career was at risk. My words were at risk. And she is one of the greatest women she named it like the Duke of Wellington at Waterloo in 1815, like Charles Spencer Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough, at the Battle of London in 1704 in Germany, and the next Churchill born at London Palace in England, near Oxford, where my wife used to play. My wife used to play. Back then. Drink with her. Well, back too. <laughs> Sir Winston Churchill. London Palace, the Duke of Marlborough, who saved England in World War II. Lady Margaret Thatcher saved the economy of England in the 1980s during our lifetime. Thank you, and God save the Queen. <laughs>
thank you for being here today. Um, my name is Victoria Lin Kay, and I'm a recent alumna of IWT. I have two questions for you. What was it? Your reason something out of something? A recent alumna of IWT. Oh, good for you. Congratulations. So I have two questions. One is a clarification, and then one is a opinion. Yeah, sure. So in order to properly price stock, you're saying that you need to not price it too high in order to encourage more people to buy stock? Well, let me ask you a question. If you're pricing a stock deal, you know, there's no real, real book on this. When I went to Harvard, I majored in finance and accounting. They didn't have a lesson on how to price deals. Still don't. Okay. If you price a deal, and it's a billion dollar deal, there's one price. If you price a four billion dollar deal, there's another price. So the size is a big issue. Okay. So you've got to adjust for that. And a bunch of other things you've got to adjust for. But that's the easiest answer to that question. Because you've got to understand how many millions of people are buying that stock the same minute. The minute they own it is the day the Securities and Exchange Commission takes a stamp and goes like that on the prospectus, that means you're effective. It's legal. At that moment, a million people buy it at that price. So, you know, you got to put a good price on there. And we have these rules called stabilization and security law. They get broken from time to time. I've seen it broken when I was there. I actually thought I saw it happen on an AT&T. But that's the first. There's other, you know, there's price earnings multiple, there's debt, debt brokers, there's all kinds of things in there. But I usually tell a client when we're pricing when they're in the room, I say, there's no book for this. Isn't it? I have to look at demand. Like, uh, what's the big tech company that everybody buys now? A disaster when they priced it. The same guys. Oh, Facebook. Facebook was a disaster. You know why? If you would call Merrill Lynch up the day before it went effective, Get all the stock you want. Too much volume. So that affects the price. That's what I used to do when I was young. I used to price it. And they really screwed that one up. My second question for you is as far as companies in the United States that you would like to see are privatized, do you have a top one or two? No, because we don't get asked by the government. The government doesn't know anything, in my opinion. I haven't worked with the pros over there, smart people. They don't do their home. So what I'm saying is, Ronald Reagan, when we finished, when he finished doing, I think it was Congress, uh, he had a list of three areas that he wanted to do. He wanted to do uh, petroleum reserves, and he wanted to do uh, some more, another uh, railroad company, and he wanted to do something else. He had three. But, you know, there has been smaller stuff going on in America in the roads. That was my deal. This, if, you, if you've ever noticed these highways that are getting privatized, that was my original deal. I did it in Barcelona. Did I pronounce it correct? Barcelona. His brother's a very famous guy. He's not so bad himself. He's a University of Maryland professor of economics. We sat next to each other in school. 52 years of history. <laughs> but anyway, um, the roads. Okay, here's, here's, a, here's a beautiful conversation. It led up to the channel. You know the channel underneath the English channel? Okay. Here's how we did it. We knew that the Olympics were coming to Buffalo. There's no road by the sea. So we, myself and Solomon, 
Collins gone now. He did the autopsy on the Nazareth, which is a road by the sea. If you go to Barcelona, that's a toll road by the water. He invented it. And, and here's what we invented. They didn't have any money to build the road. So you know what we did? We used the stocks to build the road, not bonds, not loans. We got a little loan from uh, Bank of Frenchile in the period. And then what we do is we, uh, we underwrote it. Yeah. Big deal. We, I tried to teach America how to do this, and not one politician would listen to me. They all said, we know how to do it. Not one of them know how to do this. And, and I, Solomon and I, what we did was we uh, created a basket of currencies and uh, commodities, and we invented a dividend on the stock of the road that was better than AT&T. So every institution in the world would buy it. And then we cut a deal with uh, Jordi Pujol, who was the mayor of Barcelona. I was there in his office, and also Juan Carlos was my client. You see a picture of him in our living room. He was one of my clients, too. And we cut a deal with the government, whereby the, we would own the right-of-way for 30 years, and at the end of 30 years, the land would, you're a lawyer, escheat to the king. In other words, the land would revert back. So none of these lefties could accuse us of stealing the asset from the country. Because it would escheat to the king. See the little tricks we gotta use? That's the whole secret of privatization. But you gotta be smart. Not me, the other guys. <laughs> but the secret of it is that when we built those, that toll road, we put the little tolls and we built hotels and gas stations and when we added it up and calculated it, the, the formula that we used for the dividend, we did a basket of currencies, commodities, et cetera, currencies, and made it work. So everybody bought it. And guess what? We built the road, out of the without any money. Next thing that happens is the channel comes. The French. Ah, oh, the French. All they want to do is like Obama, make money. They don't care about their investment. I did not get involved in that one, but I watched it like a hawk because they stole my idea from Spain. And you tried to use stock to build the channel. Except with the French there, they mispriced. Remember I told you how important pricing is? They mispriced every deal. They priced it too high. If it should have been priced at 10, the French would price it at 15. Boom! Down it would go. Then they'd run out of money. They could never get the two ends of the channel to meet in the middle under the channel. They had problems, they need more money, they have to go back, but then you couldn't sell the stock very much. They already killed the investment. Okay, that's the French. Now, if you notice, a number of years ago, all of a sudden you started to see these roads in America start to get built. Did you ever notice that most of the construction companies were from Spain? That's my deal. The Spanish construction guys learned how to do it from that deal in Barcelona. They're over here now. They are the leaders. They're ahead of America. I could not, you know, I'm from a small state in Maine, and I, I knew everybody up there. And, uh, and of course, the communists too. Of course, I worked in the Senate for 10 years. I was plugged in. Politicians, American politicians won't listen to me. When I go to the politicians and say, I have a formula that works, I've done it, I've raised billions, I'm going to teach you how to do infrastructure in America cheap. Now, these politicians today, they like to call it a public-private 
I don't like that. I like everything private. That way I don't have to worry about the, the bureaucrats. We're going to screw things up. And that way we can, we can leverage equity, etc. We can tell things from happen. <coughs> you think any of these guys that are here right now understand that? I'm telling you, they don't. But there is a secret to it. All you got to do is leave America, go over to Europe, and deal with some of the people over there. They know how to do it. But actually, it was invented by Americans and done over there. So I'm just giving you, this is not in my speech. This is the truth of reality in the real world. I mean, when I went to Ireland, of course, I advised them too. They didn't have any roads. <laughs> they got all the money from Brussels. I worked on that too. They had a little bridge called it over the river Liffey in, in Dublin. That was a toll bridge. And it's the only thing that worked in Ireland when I was over there. And I worked with the, uh, the Fisher and the Prime Minister, and I said, you know, you guys better go private. How old Brussels? Let's do it in the private sector and get it done. You're going to wait around for five years for those bureaucrats to figure out, like Trump said, seven years before they make up their mind? We can't afford that. We've got to do a deal. We've got to get some investment bankers in here. We've got to find out who's got the money. We've got to create a security and go get the money and build the road. And that's exactly what Trump is saying. And he's teaching it at these rallies. He's teaching people, stop this longevity crap. Let's build roads. Let's build infrastructure and use. Now, they have to use the phrase public-private because that goes down better in this country. I don't believe it. I believe in the private sector. Move faster. And you avoid mistakes because when you do in the private sector, nobody's going to give you money unless you do something that's going to work. Because if you fail, there won't be any fails. In fact, you do that. I'm talking to you. I'm giving you a feel for what it's really like out there. You've got to leave America. You can't just stick in this country. You've got to get out there in the real world and work. And you get all these ideas coming out. Oh. Are you out of focus? We want you to be in the camera one way or the other, but. Well, I guess I'm on recording something. <laughs> Send it to my wife. She'll have to go Can you comment on the debate over General Telephone Electronics? No. Stanford, Connecticut? Trump and the Chinese, uh, no, I can't. No, I can't. But I'm kind of amazed. First of all, I, I, having worked in the Senate, you know, for the Kennedys for 10 years, I also worked initially with Ed Muskie because, and George Mitchell, the son of John Mitchell, because they're from Maine. So I just had a lot of experience. I understand the argument that we got to kill these guys because they broke the Iranian thing. And I'm happy that you pull back on the Iranian deal, quite frankly, because I never liked John Kerry. But anyway, aside from that, you know, he's, he, Trump kind of held the deal with China on that company. He fired the whole board of directors. He got them to commit for how much money they'd spend over here. I mean, he got about five things out of them. If we let him continue to buy products out of America, and I figured the Americans that are selling the products are going to make money off it. So I looked a little bit at scans, but I understand it's totally political. It's totally, totally voters political. We hate anybody who helped Iran. But where were they when they sent a billion and a half dollars on a plane in the middle of the night, cash over the Iran? Where were those people? Where were they? Where were those people? 
And I'm not a Republican. Capitalism. I believe in capitalism. That way you can't go wrong. If, if you run on things good in capitalism, you make the money and everybody's happy. Simple as that. Except the problem is, is the way I see it, having worked for 17 government, the purpose of the politicians is to get people to vote for them, not necessarily to make the people happy. The people are happy when they get what they want. It's, it's uh, kind of crazy what's going on right now. Anyway. Yes, sir, a question for you, a monetary related question. Uh, is the increasing concentration of wealth and even the essence of uh, investment <coughs> banking only possible because of the essence of money as it is now, which is credit borrowed into existence at interest through a privatized central bank, which is in contrast to the nature of what constitutionally money was supposed to be in this country? Go I don't know sense. what it is, although I just finished reading the book about Hamilton. He had a lot to do with the money in this country, right? The, central, the, the treasury. central bank, yeah. Yeah, and his, by the way, his professor was my wife's uncle. My wife's uncle was at his bedside when he died. He was the bishop of New York City. It's Kathy Moore. Benjamin Moore was her uncle. Uh, I can't almost answer that question. I don't understand it. I mean, money's money. Money comes from wherever it comes from. It usually goes where people are good to it. Well, Other than that, I, I don't know how to answer your question. Right? Well, the nature of what money is, when historically it was gold and silver coin, not easily counterfeited, I'm not or, an expert where the average, the common person, as it were, yeah, but uh, what's your question? had greater. Uh, I guess it's a, a question of contrast. How would the, would the, the ownership of assets in our country be different if we had a medium of exchange money that did not fluctuate, wasn't subject to being inflated perpetually in, in uh, quantity? To facilitate the, uh, the the largest corporations. You just said professionally inflated money. Perpetually, perpetually. I, I don't understand that. I, I I know what inflation is. It's expansion of the money I, I supply. I, yes. Oh, you know, I guess you're, you're thinking about the Fed or something. Yes. I'm, I'm not good at the Fed. Okay. I'm, I'm really not. I'm just an investment bank. But I do billions. And you know what I say. These big billion dollar deals, except for privatization, are a lot easier to do than smaller deals. Oh man, when you're dealing with a big one, it's like at t it's so easy to do. When you're dealing down in Florida with a $150 million deal, it's really hard to do. You know, going back to, like Thomas Jefferson, he believed in the farmers, and Alexander Hamilton believed in the treasurer. Two, two different guys. And down there, when you're dealing with real people, they're the most difficult to deal with. When you're dealing with AT&T, General Motors, I did General Motors too, they're really easy to work with. People are difficult to deal with. Now, privatization, you've got corruption. I'm telling you, when you're out there in the world, you students, you've got to watch everything around you. Everything, including USAID. I turned them in a few times. And I'm with the period there. Sir? Yes? With the hair. <laughs> I went to Columbia and said, well, I really appreciate the talk. Um, my question is very obvious. I guess <coughs> I get privatization, I get true happiness is achieved through the free markets. I believe that too. But I'd be so, you know, but as you were talking, I keep thinking about Singapore. I keep thinking about Singapore. The Scandinavian countries are 
disinformation from Shenzhen, uh, where a lot of Chinese companies are have like a ton of money from the Chinese government, and they do extremely well. Yeah. So I mean, how do you explain that? I mean, is it just that like we just maybe? I'm sure you can explain it, and I can explain. I mean, it's obvious that all of this what's going on. It's not difficult. I mean, you don't really think it's difficult. Do you? I mean, you look at Tencent, you look at Baba. I mean, it's all obvious what's going on. It's just big money involved. It's all, you know, it's pretty interesting. I buy the ETF for China. It's not doing that well lately. <laughs> I've worked in Beijing. I've worked with the, uh, the Chinese government early when nobody else was working over there. You know what the biggest problem was? And I'm a lawyer. I'm sorry. I'm not, no, I'm really not. I'm a member of the Congress. Uh, yeah, here's what happened. Like our subsidiary, the third largest white man's commodity house in the world. Number two is Metallica South Chef in Munchen. And uh, you do a deal, you buy uh, 100 million of aluminum number 10 in China, aluminum, and you have it delivered to the dock. Comes in number 15. There's no law. No law to help you protect it. In, initially, when we started working in China. So, and I, I studied uh, communist law at Columbia Law School, one of the few places they had it. I knew communist law. And the bamboo curtain, quite frankly, you know how we got around it? I'll, I'll give you another lesson right now. Letters of credit at Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. That's how we got around it. If we're doing a deal, if the commodities traders are doing a transaction in, in Beijing and it all falls apart at the dock, we generally run it through Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. And it's got an LLC behind letter of credit behind it. And we'll enforce the letter of credit. We had no law. Now in Russia, we had, and I studied Russian law at Columbia Law School. And we had what we call vodka law. <laughs> It's pretty tough some things over there also. I never really, I did do deals in, I did do privatizations in communist countries. I'm one of the first, I'm one of the only guys in the world who's done it. And I represented John Whitehead at Goldman Sachs. He hired John Whitman and I, my classmate from Harvard. John just died, his wife is Christine Whitman, the governor of New Jersey, and said the EPA. That's my partner, John and I. And the government, our government asked John and I to establish the first bank in the communist country, John and I. And I went over there and I had to fight the Russians. They almost had more dollars in their pockets than the Americans did. And I had to use the government's money. So I'm used to dealing with the communists. Okay. And uh, that's a different kind of privatization. <laughs> then you got, I actually am looking at Cuba. You know, this gentleman right here is a big man in Cuba. And his brother, really, not that your brother's bad, but uh, you can't do anything right now. I mean, I've been down there working with the Great Warriors in uh, Miami, et cetera, on Cuba. But the problem with privatization in Cuba is I need bigger deals. These small deals, they're easy. And so I say, there's not much we can do right now except in the airline industry, because the airlines are moving out of there and they get cash flow on. Uh, hotels. We might be able to do something. 
But other than that, the regulations are too bad, so we can't do much down there. Now, when you're, you're in Hungary or Czech, when the Russians were going back to Moscow, they didn't want to go back to Moscow, the soldiers, because the food was better in like, Hungary than it was back in Russia. Uh, but uh, it was really crooked. You know how you do a privatization as a, as a Russian in, in Eastern Europe? Most of the company, I'm, I'm teaching you. Wait. Yeah. You, you, should I stop talking? <laughs> I was going to tell you, yeah, around the world, you gotta, when you're going in there with money, you've got to remember, like in Cuba, you're going to find the Chinese down there right now. You're going to find the Italians down there. You're going to find probably some Germans. We're not there. Okay? I'm trying to give you a feel for around the world. You know, Africa, you know, people like John Pizzi was saying to me today, you know, John from Newsmax, John was saying how important Africa is. But you've got to know the history of Africa. I could give you a lecture for an hour on how to do business in Africa. But it's going to be rough doing privatization. This is all stuff that's important that we're talking about here. And it requires smart guys and women to know what they're doing in the world. And if you don't know this stuff, you don't know anything. This is just a side question. What did you say, like, looking at your comment from earlier about Facebook, isn't it still pretty difficult to price tech companies? Depends on how good the pricer is. You get a good price, you're going to do a good job. All you got to do is add up the demand, see if uh, comparisons. You know, if you're doing a fancy boutique piece of thing, you maybe you might look at what Tiffany's trading at. Do a comparison. See what uh, the PE multiples are and stuff. Then look at how much demand you've got coming in the door. You know how much demand's coming in. And then don't increase the size of the deal if you totally got it perfect. That's what they didn't do. The last day and a half, boom, they upped it, number of shares, boom, fell apart. <coughs> Am I talking too much up with Anybody got one line? We could go on for hours and how to do this. See, we don't have any investment bankers really in Washington, D.C. We have a few of them. Mm -hmm. Communist is going to be different. Why is it going to be different? I'll give you an example. This is a, actually happened to me when the government asked John Whitman and I, my partner, to go to Europe and build a bank for America. All the good assets that were there when the Russians were leaving, everybody wanted to buy them. So we in America went over, USAID came, and uh, it's not so great. I've been there. Uh, the, the communists are for sale at the management level. In other words, the communists control the companies. For example, you go to a factory, and there will be a communist running the factory. And he's usually in control of the pension fund, if there is one. He's in control of all the jobs. He is for sale. Now, the Germans and the French 
will come in, particularly the French are so active in Africa, you know, historically. They'll go in and they will have a private meeting with that manager that you're not invited to as an American. And they'll give him what he wants most. And you know what he wants most? BMW. I've seen more BMWs pass around <laughs> in the communist countries. They're handing out BMWs all over the place. And I'll tell you in Africa how to find out where the money's, your competition is going to come from. Because John Wyndham and I discovered this, my dear partner, who's dead. Got a bronze star in Vietnam, played on a football team in Harvard, and died in his own bathroom. Fell down. But you go into the factory, whether it be probably the same in Africa, but certainly in Eastern Europe. And you walk in the door, and you've got to keep track of who's going to bid against you if you're American to finance USAID and all that stuff. Except we weren't, we weren't working for USAID. So we weren't doing government. So anyway, you go to the door, you open the door, and you open it like this, and it's usually sometimes nailed shut. You open the door, and they're usually big doors, big you know, 1930s type doors. You look on the back of the door, and it will be French or German. And then you know who's going to compete for that factory. No, you know that they originally owned it, and somebody took it over. The Russians took it over, or somebody in Africa took it over. And you know they're going to want to buy that factory back again. This is what I call the, the reality of doing privatizations that the politicians in this country don't understand. And the other problem is if the foreign court practices that. Because here I am over there trying to do good things for America. And I gotta compete with these guys with my hands tied behind my back. Straight, honest. And all other countries around me are breaking the law all over the place. They're paying think in Cuba will have. I mean they they pay. The people who control things get paid. If you're an American and they catch you, they'll put you in jail, particularly this Congress. But the crazy part of it is I used to do the escrow bonds when I was really young. Let me tell you, it's the crookedest things going on in this country are in the states at the municipal level. And the payoffs are incredible. I know, because I worked in the Congress for 10 years. So what we criticize foreign cultures for, this really bothers me. We criticize foreign cultures for things that we say are terrible, and yet we're doing it right here in the States. I guarantee you, I've seen very famous people take money illegally at the state level. Not the, not just in yeah, and then we criticize Italy for, for doing things that we're doing here ourselves. But you can't say it. What I like about England is, you know, you can represent a company in England, in the, in the, in the parliament. If you sign a piece of paper and say, hey, look, I have a, rep I have a relationship with, with Jaguar. I, I, I work with them. And I, I officially will tell you that. So when I'm in Parliament and I'm speaking out, I'll probably speak in favor of Jaguar. We don't have that here. You accuse a congressman if he's got a relationship with being a crook. You know? At least they're honest in England. You know, not 100% honest. <laughs> You know what I mean? That's what you're dealing with as Americans. Americans don't understand how difficult it is to be successful as an American outside of this country. Excuse me for running up. About time I called on you. It's my understanding that the uh, government of Puerto Rico just signed the 
I know something about it. Well, Believe it or not. <laughs> I'll tell you who approached me. I'll tell you, I had to write a paper. Are you, are you guys involved in it? You're going to no. be involved in it? No, I don't know who might be involved. You want to be? Whatever it is, they're not experienced. Because there isn't anybody experienced like us. But I'll tell you who approached me. You won't okay. believe this. Chi Chi Rodriguez. Really? Really? How about you didn't play golf? I don't play golf. <laughs> but I, I belong to the club. And Chi Chi approached me. Right? Yeah. Chi Chi said, Bob, I hear, I read about you. I know you do this stuff. He said, I got a real problem. I know everybody in Puerto Rico. Can you tell me how to advise the head guy? And I said, I don't know who the head guy is, but what do you want? He said, I need a piece of paper one or two pages to explain how to handle it in, in Puerto Rico. And not knowing Puerto Rico very well. You know, I had two offices in Spain. I had one in Madrid and one, one in Barcelona. My offices, I never spoke Spanish. I used to do deals all the time, but I never spoke Spanish. You know what? Everybody in Spain wants to practice their English. You go to dinner at night with the Spanish ladies and their husbands, the Spanish ladies want to talk English all night. And they don't start eating until 10 o'clock at night in Madrid. In so I have worked on it slightly. I don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, they're not talking to the pros. Whoever they're talking to is holding themselves out as experts, and they're not. So I would worry about this. You need pros. You need guys who've done it. And they save you money, they make you money. But everybody in the world these days, you know, I did this 37 years ago thinks they know everything. And also there's what I call the penny pinchers who don't want to spend any money and pay pros. I can do it myself. I run into that in mergers and acquisitions all the time. And my kid just graduated from the Wharton School in Philadelphia and he can do everything. <laughs> I said, oh, good luck. <laughs> so anyway, I've answered a lot of questions. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Public-private partnership now in the United States, and now it does the propaganda almost everywhere, every agency. But they, they don't know how to do it. What have they ever done? No, what I mean is that is an extreme problem of women in our network operation. I'll give you one example. There's a Rockwell Town Center in Maryland, Montgomery County. That's a wealthy county. But they, they, almost every agency, they Divert resources to benefit a few. They resorted to what? Divert the education, the school, the department. Yeah. They give the some resources, money to a few. It's a donation, actually. Means yeah. that's why. And I'm who's getting, getting that money? That's government money give to the private with the school name, the principal's name to give out. This is this is a, that's education. That's a small education. agency. But public private partnerships even worse. This town center, they say that private land want to have a good development. So eventually That's real estate. Huh? That's real estate. So if we feel from a private land yeah, could happen. to uh, to that look, look, let me just let me just throw an idea at this. You talk about real estate and public private. Okay, let's say we get wrong right. The whole town center, what I mean is from the private land you build up that in the between every step or away from design to consultant to inspection of everything is paid by taxpayers' money. Oh, I know that. Yeah. Except and during privatization. But this is this we bring is, the money in. 
I got that problem in Florida. They're spending money like crazy. It's all taxpayer money. I go testify before them. They don't want to hear about it. The politicians do. And the employees don't want to hear about it because they all are on the old-fashioned General Motors pension funds. I, I, I appeared before the, uh, the Palm Beach County group, and they're doing just what you're talking about. And I said to them, you're doing it wrong. Let me tell you how we ought to do it. And the woman said, we don't... We don't have time to talk to you. She was a CPA and another girl CPA. I said, why not? And they said, I, I said, I'm here as a favor to you. You guys asked me to explain how I did it all around the world for nothing. And uh, she said, yeah, but you worked on Wall Street, didn't you? And I said, yes. She said, we don't want any of you Wall Street guys here in Palm Beach County. I said, why not? She says, because you'll ruin my pension fund. They're on the, uh, what you call the old-fashioned pension funds that bury General Motors. That, th these counties have those kind of pension funds. They're exorbitant, but they're afraid if you get the pros in there, right? Right. It's going to screw mean, things up. Right. They want everybody to be shut up. That's what they did to me. Right. I looked at them. <laughs> <laughs> this, this woman said to me, she's a CPA, two CPAs. She says to me, she's watching her clock. I've been there three minutes. And I got, I've done my homework. Yeah. And I said to her, uh, I said to her, uh, look, let me tell you how to do it. She says, look, we don't have time to talk to you. As a matter of fact, we've got another meeting. See you later. And I looked at her and I said, do you know what, how much money Margaret Thatcher paid me per hour just to talk? And you don't have time to talk to me? She didn't care. She didn't care. Believe me. You can't deal with them. They don't want to hear. Like you said, they do not want to hear. Now, we multiply that by every county in the country, and you see what we're up against. A lot of trouble. It's those pension funds that are going to kill us. You know, the modern pension funds don't like these old ones, but the politicians, they give them away. These, these old-fashioned pension funds. That's what killed John Mark. Well, can you stop this? No, that's... We have to stop it. Well, the voters. But the voters don't understand. The voters do not understand what we're dealing with. I'm telling you, that's why I like Trump, because Trump is trying to explain it. He's a teacher. More than anything, he's a teacher. I mean, how many candidates have you ever seen get up and talk about trade wars before now? Never. I mean, he's teaching things to people that they never heard of before. My wife loves it. She says, Jesus, he's teaching me. And, and that's really what we've got to do. But I'll tell you the problem with guys like myself. I'm running an investment bank. I've got 22 investment banks. And I'm 74 years old. I don't have enough hours in the day to teach. And when I'm dealing with, with politicians, which I've dealt with all my life, and they're so stupid, and they won't listen, they won't ask, then you say, I'd rather go make money. You know, it was very clear to me when I went to business school. I got out of law school, I remember the New York bar and the main bar. I said, I got a choice to make money. Either I'm going into politics, because I've been with the Kennedys for 10 years in the Senate, or I'm going to make money. One of the two. Guess what? It was an easy decision. It was an easy decision. It's a lot easier in business than it is dealing with what you're dealing with. Very difficult. And of course, when we do privatizations, that's all it's about, is taking all these various aspects and making the thing happen. You've got to really work hard. Well, all right, I, I'm sorry I went over time. <laughs>
But I gave you a lot of information. I think it'll be helpful to you. I guarantee you that every person in this room is more knowledgeable about privatization than anybody on Capitol Hill. <laughs>